The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Let's turn to Esther chapter 7. We're continuing our series in Esther and two more sermons after this. And even though it is a communion night, we're going on with this series and certainly does, I hope you'll see, relate in a way to the Lord's Supper and Christ and his great work on our behalf. But we're considering Esther chapter 7. Let us hear God's inspired and inerrant word. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been merely sold as slaves, men, and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king rose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Father, we pray for your help in understanding your holy word. May you teach us and instruct us and guide us as we seek to understand it through Jesus Christ. Amen. God's providence is a mysterious thing. Even secular writers use the word to speak of an especially fortuitous event, such as the providential fog that covered the retreat of General George Washington and the Continental Army after they had been decisively defeated by the British at the Battle of Long Island. Many of you know that story. Because of that fog that night and that next morning for a time, 
George Washington and his army were enabled to be ferried across the river on a host of small boats from Long Island and Brooklyn, what was to become Brooklyn, to the island of Manhattan. And so they would live to fight again. A providential fog. I got that phrase from a secular history about that event. I'm sure the British weren't calling it a providential fog when it happened. You know, have you noticed how we tend to call things providential that are good? In truth, God's sovereign providence extends to all things, all events, all human decisions and actions, all things, both good and evil, from large to small. We just don't always use the term that way. Usually we're talking about a fortuitous, a good providence, or a remarkable providence that's obvious. This evening we come in the book of Esther to see something of the balance in the Bible in viewing human action and decision in light of and underneath the overarching sovereignty and providence of God. For here in chapter 7, we see Queen Esther finally take action and present her bold petition to her husband, the king. A very exciting, dramatic scene. Remember, as we noted in our study of chapter 6 not long ago, chapter 6 is really the, the turning point of the book. Up until that time, things are going badly for Mordecai and Esther and the Jews in a sense, but then things turn. And in chapter 6, we saw that the exact reason for the turn of the fortunes of the Jews here is clearly seen to be solely the work of the sovereign God. No one else is acting in chapter 6. In fact, the hinge of the whole book is the king's sleepless night. He has insomnia. So he gets an attendant to read him from the record of his kingdom. And what does he read? The exact account of Mordecai exposing an assassination attempt five years beforehand for which he hasn't been rewarded yet. What an amazing providence that was. And clearly, the author of the book intends to state clearly, God is the one who is at work coming to the aid of his people who are in desperate need. But as commentators point out about this book, chapter 6 is bracketed, we might say. It's surrounded by chapters 5 and Seven, two chapters that focus on decisive and courageous action by Esther, which is also part of how God delivers the Jews, part of his sovereign purposes and plan. You see how sovereignty and human action don't contradict one another. It's not either or. And in chapter 5, we saw Esther risk her life to approach the king when he has not called for her. Both very dramatic chapters. So here in chapter 7, Esther finally presents her request at her second banquet for the king and Haman. Let's look first. My first point is Esther's difficult predicament. And we look at our text and we see something of what Esther faced. It's hard for us to think of in these terms because we know the end of the book. 
we know everything goes well. It's like reading a story when you know the ending and everything, you know, it's not very stressful because we know things are going to be fine. Esther was in a predicament for various reasons here. One, even though the king had received her, she hadn't made her request yet. She hadn't actually asked him for what she had hoped to ask. And up until this point, remember, she's been married to the king for five years, and all that time, he apparently does not know she is a Jew. He doesn't even really stop to think about it, if he knows it at all. He doesn't seem to be concerned about it at all. We don't don't know exactly, but apparently Esther kept her Jewishness very secret. Hardly anyone knew about it. She's followed Mordecai's advice thoroughly, even for these years after becoming queen. Esther had blended in with the world completely. Here's a quote that I like about this. To hide her nationality that successfully while living so intimately among pagans, she must have broken virtually every law in the books of Moses. Interesting, isn't it, to think about how she managed to do that. We know from the experience of Daniel or Joseph, their ethnicity, their nationality was known. Daniel tried hard and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to live in a pagan land, but there were, there were costs, there were problems that arose. She probably broke the laws of ritual cleanliness that the Jews have to observe. She probably broke the kosher food laws. Certainly, she would have broken the commands about special times and seasons of thanksgiving and fasting. Now, we don't know for sure, but it seems evident. Even uh, prayer, even to find a way, how did she find ways to pray without others really knowing that she was praying? Maybe she did that to some extent, but um, clearly she blended in. Her mission was not easy, and now... She knew she finally had to act. She had planned to act. She was committed to it. She had already risked her life once, and she had to present her request to the king. It was no small thing. Think of how you and I might feel about a phone call we really don't want to make. You ever have that when you don't want to make a phone call? Or maybe you're an employer and you have to let someone go, and someone was telling me this week that his employer took him out to a nice restaurant, and before he even got there, he said, are you firing me? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, So um, we don't like those difficult kind of phone calls or interactions maybe to have a tough conversation with a child or with someone we know. How would you have liked to have come before King Ahasuerus with this request? And don't forget, this was a man whom history remembers as a dangerously unstable individual. A man seemingly concerned only about himself. In fact, after... um, Haman is taken out, I can just see the king saying, okay, what's for dinner now? You know, it doesn't even faze him. And yet a man with absolute power ruling over almost the whole known world at that time. There's an account by the Greek historian Herodotus that describes King Ahasuerus' reaction to another request during the early years of his reign, and he's been king for seven years now. Uh, This request... Herodotus tells us, came from a wealthy supporter of the king named Pythias. Pythias had entertained the king hospitably at times, 
and he had contributed generously to the costs of the wars with Greece, those wars which took, took place again in the early years of the king's reign, and we know that he didn't completely conquer Greece. Um, what did Pythias request? Pythias requested from the king that the eldest of his five sons be excused from the obligation of military service in those wars with Greece. Sounds like a reasonable request, right? I mean, this kind of thing went on all the time with high-ranking nobility and so forth. It gets special preferential treatment from the king. Uh, Well, most of us might think that's the case, but King Ahasuerus, Herodotus says, was so enraged by this request that he had the eldest son immediately executed and then had his body cut in half and had the army pass between the two halves. This is not a man that you just go up to and ask things of. This is the kind of man King Ahasuerus was. And add to all of this, Esther's request was against Haman, the second most powerful man in the empire at this time. No small thing. Man of great power. And we know, and some, there's allusions to it here when she talks about... Um, you know, compared, verse 7, it's not to be compared with the loss to the king. What loss to the king is she speaking about here? Probably she's alluding to earlier in the book and the, the, the deal Haman strikes with the king. The king stood to gain 10,000 talents from the eradication of the Jews. And so Esther is requesting that she and the Jews not be destroyed, so there's going to be loss to the king. That's, that was estimated to be half the annual tax revenue of the empire at that time. That wasn't pocket change. So Esther, you can see, is in a difficult situation. She's requested to come before the king. This is the second banquet now to, in a sense, prepare for this. And now comes, secondly, we want to look at Esther's bold request. She comes in verse 3. She says, Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. By the way, that twofold way she states that corresponds exactly to the words that are used when the king asks her, uh, What is your wish? And what is your request? It's kind of a formal way of doing it. And she's responding exactly in the same way. And her twofold request is spare my life and spare the life of my people. And it's interesting, isn't it, that she doesn't mention them by name. She doesn't say of the Jews. And Hazarus never says that. Originally, when he, made, when he approved Haman's plot and plan, the name of that particular group was not mentioned either. Haman just said, there's a certain people, and Ahasuerus, you know, the, the picture we get of Ahasuerus throughout the book is he really can't be bothered with any decisions. He needs his advisors all the time, and so um, he's not really that concerned about things. And so we see Esther make this request. Verse 4, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had merely been sold as slaves, men and Women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Interesting, isn't it? She says, 
If we were just going to be made slaves, I wouldn't have bothered you, husband. Um, But since we're being killed and destroyed, I'm bringing this up. It's kind of an irony there too as well because in a sense, Esther is already a slave. She's brought probably against her will into the harem to be part of the harem and she was made queen. But she's saying, I wouldn't have bothered you. She's putting this petition in a very humble way, exalting the king. Uh, Notice she doesn't make him to blame for any of this even though he was the king who approved this plan. The buck stops here, right? Uh, But she doesn't mention that. She's not going to say that at all. She didn't take the Nathan approach to David the king. You are the man. (laughs) She, (laughs) She didn't say that. She was wise. She knew she couldn't say that. Her logic here was, this is death we're facing here, not just enslavement. And in a sense, she's saying, it's in the king's best interest. If, if Esther has found favor in his sight, then it's in the king's best interest to spare her and her people. Why? Because, well, king, you'll lose your queen. And that's in your best interest. I hope that you not lose me. There's probably that sense there. And then, verse 5, the king says, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? You don't know if he doesn't know or if he's just putting this on or probably he doesn't really know what she's talking about exactly because he's not that aware of what's going on in his own kingdom. And she says, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. One commentator translates it, A man hateful and hostile. You can just see the tension here. And the wicked um, Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Wow. So the king goes out of the room. He goes into the palace gardens close by. Um, Why did he go out of the room? It wasn't to cool down. The king never needed to cool down. No one was going to tell him to cool down. It wasn't that he was going to count the ten out there and come back and then do something calm. No. And it wasn't that he went out to think about should Haman be destroyed or not. He knew that he was going to destroy Haman. The problem was, and most commentators agree, that the king went out because this provided a sticky situation. Not for Haman. He didn't care about him. But for the king. Because... He had to think about the politics of this and his own reputation and all of this because he is the one who had signed the decree initially and he had to somehow take this action without losing face. Can he punish Haman for a plot that he himself, the king, approved? It's probably this kind of thing that he went out to think about in his rage. Kind of reminded me, I was thinking about that the last week or two when and we had all the State Department worrying about um, the Syrian attack. And then comes Secretary of State Kerry's offhand remark about, well, if the Russians do this. And, you know, I was thinking about Esther 7 much of this time and thinking about times haven't changed. You know, 
how can maybe, I don't know, how can the president get out of doing what he said he was going to do and not being outvoted in Congress? And here come the Russians. You know, it's nothing, there's nothing new under the sun here. The king was thinking of what politically would be in his best interest. And he had, decide, he had to decide this one on his own. And so the king returns to the room and immediately there is presented to him a solution, a very convenient solution. Haman is falling on Esther's couch. Now, I don't think for one minute that the king thought that at this point Haman was trying anything wrong with his wife. But it presented the king just the convenient pretext to charge and execute Haman. Now, we should note that Haman did break protocol, court protocol. No one but the king could be left alone with the woman of the harem. So Haman was put in a difficult place when the king walked out of the room. He should have left the room. Was he going to go with the king? I don't think so. Was he going to go somewhere else and try to flee? Well, that would have looked pretty bad. He would have certainly been killed. His, really, his only option, as limited as it was, was to stay there and to plead with Esther to intercede for him. And that's what he chose to do. And he was begging her, pleading with her, and uh, close to her. By the way, even in the presence of others, a man was not to approach within seven steps of a woman of the harem, thought to be for that time. And the king walks in, and of course there he is pleading with her in a sense. And the king saw that as the perfect, convenient way to come out up with the solution for what he needed to see. Ironic, again, to put it in another quote here, the one who wanted to kill a Jew for not falling down before him, Mordecai, you know, he wanted Mordecai to bow down, and Haman wanted to kill Mordecai for that. The one who wanted to kill a Jew for not falling down before him was ultimately executed on a charge of falling down inappropriately before a Jew. And we might add a female Jew at that. Clearly here, we see uh, in this response to Esther's petition a clear fulfillment of the prediction of chapter 6, verse 13, where after Haman goes out and proclaims adulation for Mordecai, he comes back distraught, and he tells his wife and his friends and the wise men that are there with them, and uh, the wise men and his wife Zeresh say to him, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And there it happens. He falls before the Jews. So Haman's last-ditch effort here to uh, save himself actually is what seals his fate. Falling on Esther's couch would have been an unthinkable breach of protocol, but it turned out to be a very tidy solution for the king. And so Haman, his face is covered probably He's uh, blindfolded and gagged. He's taken out of the room, and he's, he's really impaled. That's the gallows that they refer to here. It's a different kind of execution than hanging as we think of that. And that's 
the end of chapter 7, except that it notes that the wrath of the king is abated. I would like us to draw three lessons as our final point from this. The first is this. God is sovereign over all things, and yet human responsibility is real. God is sovereign over all things, and yet, yet human responsibility is real. The Bible holds both of these truths strongly and firmly. In some ways, we look at them, and they're like parallel lines going out into infinity, but the Bible says they're both true. God is sovereign over all. Humans are responsible for their decisions, their actions, their hearts. Clearly, human responsibility is under, we might say, the overarching umbrella of the sovereignty of God. It's an amazing thing to read what Scripture says about even evil things being under the sovereignty of God, even sin being under the sovereignty of God. Yet God is so great that he exercises sovereignty without violating human responsibility. In other words, he's sovereign, and he can do things like this, and he didn't violate the human responsibility of Esther or Haman or the king or anyone involved. Just like Pharaoh, he didn't violate the human responsibility of Pharaoh to accomplish his will in hardening his heart. Scripture frequently joins these two truths without seeing any contradiction. Sovereignty and responsibility. Let me just look at three examples of that. One is Matthew eleven, twenty-five to 30. Here's the place where Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And that's not the end. I'm not going to stop there. But notice, Jesus is talking about the sovereignty of God over salvation. No one knows the Son except the one the Son chooses to reveal him to. And then right after that, declaration, amazing, breathtaking declaration of sovereignty, comes the gracious inf- invitation that we all know so well, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take your yoke upon me and learn of me. There's the free offer of the gospel that highlights our responsibility, our calling to trust Jesus Christ, to come to him. Jesus didn't have a problem at all with putting those right next to one another. There's another instance like that. There are many more, but another one, just to give you one, is John six thirty-seven. Just one verse. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Notice the two parts of that verse. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Sovereignty. And then the second half of the verse, the free offer of the gospel, which highlights our responsibility to call, to come. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. One more. Just This one's about perseverance. Colossians 1, 21 to 23, Paul is praying for the church at Colossae, and he says at this point, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. There's the keeping power of God. You're in Christ. He's going to keep you. He's going to present you holy and blameless 
And then the following verse highlights our responsibility to persevere. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, and so forth. There's the call to persevere. It doesn't put in doubt God's keeping power, but it shows that human responsibility coincides with God's sovereign keeping power. It's God's keeping power that enables us to persevere, we would even say. So I'm saying here we must hold to this biblical balance of sovereignty and responsibility. To give you another quote, God's sovereign act is the turning point of the book of Esther, but God works through the faithful efforts of his people just as much as through remarkable providences. You hear what he's saying? God is sovereign. He works sometimes in just completely mysterious ways through the king's sleepless night, but God also chooses to act through the faithful efforts of his people as well. There was a famous battle, a little battle, during King Philip's war in Massachusetts in 1675. Maybe that's a war you might not know a lot about, but this little battle became known as the Peace Field Fight. Peace as in P-E-A-S-E, the Peace Field Fight. And in this battle, Benjamin Church and 19 other New Englanders who were pinned down on this spit of beach for six hours held out against 300 Indians. And it really was a tremendously remarkable providence that New England was just astounded by when the, when the results of this were known. And even the Indians later described the same thing and said it did take place. And for the rest of his life, Benjamin Church saw the event as an indisputable proof of, quote, the glory of God and his protecting providence. But if you read the account of the battle as it's given, it's clear that the men take responsibility to do what they must seek to do to protect themselves. They don't stand there on the beach kind of just waving at the Indians and knowing that the providence of God. And throughout the battle, actually, Benjamin Church is exhorting them and encouraging his men to keep acting and not give way to fear because of belief in the providence of God to them. It's an interesting and remarkable account. So there's not a contradiction between sovereignty and responsibility. And that leads us to our second lesson, and that is this. Wisdom in these things calls us to worship, pray, and act. Being wise as we understand what the Bible says about God's sovereignty and our human responsibility should call us to worship God, to pray, and to act. All of those things. Think of various areas, areas in our lives where these two intertwine. Reaching out with the gospel to neighbors and friends in your community. Um, we know that God must work in people's hearts and lives. But we know we just can't sit back and not do anything and say, well, God will do it if he wants to do it. No, we must be intentional in our evangelism. But we must also be praying for God to work, right? Both are true. Or take the wider work of the church. Our hope in the church here is not in our wisdom, in our leadership, in our giftedness, in our building, in our money, in our programs. Um, But our hope is in God. That doesn't mean those other things are bad or wrong. And you look at the bulletin, it's full of activities this fall, right? 
Is that wrong? I hope not. Um, if It would be wrong if we'd be trusting those alone, but it's fine. It's fine to be active, but we know it is God who gives new life. It's God who transforms lives and changes hearts. So both are true. Or, or look at our own sanctification. Don't we all bemoan how slow our sanctification goes and how up and down it is and how weak we are. Uh, But we can't go to either extreme of just the uh, total let go and let God. Like we don't have to do anything. No, we know that's not true. We have to strive with all his energy that powerfully works within us. But the other extreme is striving and not trusting, not praying. This applies again and again and again. And so wisdom and understanding the biblical balance calls us to worship God. He is our God. We belong to him. He is the sovereign one. Our trust is ultimately in him. And he's revealed himself through Jesus Christ. And so we can pray and we can faithfully seek to act as he calls us to. And then finally, Scripture presents God's sovereignty as linked to his faithful covenant. Scripture presents God's sovereignty as linked to his faithful covenant, to his people, his covenant love. God's grace in calling a people to himself, those who trust in him. God, God's sovereignty is not an empty fatalism, as some religions or some belief systems have, but God is a loving, gracious, and wise sovereign. Why did Esther succeed in her request? Think about that. We all know it wasn't because she was so great. It wasn't because she had really prayed so much. The book doesn't ever talk about prayer. In fact, if anything, the book goes to the other extreme and seems to emphasize the fact that God's people were not praying. They fast, but there's no mention of prayer. There's no mention of God in the book. We're not saying they didn't do that at all, but clearly... We are not looking at great heroes in this book who do great things. We're looking at a great God who is the hero of the book. And God rescued Esther and Mordecai and the Jews because he is and was a faithful God to those who belong to him. And God continues to work on behalf of those who trust in him even when we are weak and foolish and unbelieving. God's sovereign love is an unfailing love. And I just like to think of the contrast between uh, the fickle and changing favor of King Ahasuerus. Think of him. Haman was the number two man, but now he's going to be executed. You know, any wind can blow and King King Ahasuerus' favor shifts. There's this uncertainty. Esther doesn't know whether he's going to receive her or not, whether he's going to hear her petition or not. Compare that type of favor, which has no stability, to the favor and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that is founded in his character and in his unfailing love. What a comparison. There's no comparison, is there? Let me read a quote. Um. Here's a quote about this. God's people are those who have built their lives around the only truth that will last. The truth of a king who is utterly different from Ahasuerus. 
We have a king who doesn't need to be manipulated and cajoled to do what is right. Our king does what is right because he himself is righteous. He cannot do anything other than the right. We have a king who, instead of being consumed with himself and his own interests, has staked his name and reputation upon a people whom he would always call his own, even when it was costly for him to do so. We have a king who, far from, in, far from inventing charges against us, took the charges that we had deservedly incurred for failing to serve him as we ought and laid them upon his dearly beloved son. No comparison is there. What a king we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. What certainty we have in his favor and grace to us. May our trust, may your trust tonight be in our great king, Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, thank you for such a savior. Thank you that even though we know we're weak and failing and um, stumbling in our lack of faith, yet you are faithful to your own. Thank you for your character revealed in the sending of Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth, the radiance, the exact representation of the Father to come and to live and exhibit that love and to die for us. We thank you that we can come to your table tonight. We pray that you would um, really plant these truths in our hearts, that we would be built up this week. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.